0: This morning, I want to share with you the title of my message is When It's Time to Leave the Tent. If you happen to be still reading through the New Testament in a year, like I hope you are, uh, we're in 2 Corinthians. And one of the chapters that we're supposed to have read this week is chapter 5. And it's always interesting when I try to continually remind myself of the, of the, uh, the setting as best I can, remembering that you know Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, Actually, there is three letters, the way it looks. The first one, we don't know what happened to, but we have what we call 1 Corinthians, and then where we're at in 2 Corinthians. And Paul himself had spent 18 months in Corinth, establishing the church. Corinth was a big city. It was kind of the, about the fourth biggest city in the Roman Empire at the time. And it was a city located in a very strategic place, main roads. It was a, a, a booming economy. And in the midst of all that, it was an evil city. Sin abounded. I, I, if I can find it real quick. It's not in the Bible. It's in the introduction to my, in my Bible. Um, a description of the church. Because if you read 1 Corinthians, First Corinthians, um, Paul scolded him a little bit. Um, he gave him a real sound spanking in love. And in Roman in Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians, you'll see, if you read through the whole book, it's almost like he's, almost a little apologetic, but he's glad he did it because it got them back on track. The reports were good. He's sort of defending himself a lot in Second Corinthians, defending himself in terms of being an apostle, his apostolic calling. And at the same time, he, he is expressing his love, but he addressed a lot of issues. Here's a, de- a description of the church in Corinth when Paul, this is what motivated him to write that first letter correcting a lot of things it says this they reported there were divisions much sin in the congregation there was gross immorality lawsuits between christians in front of unbelievers many practical problems in living the christian life marriage problems difficulties concerning what they eat eating meat offered to idols uh, difficulty with matters of conscience abuses in taking the lord's supper Uh, they'd get drunk disorderly conduct in the formal assemblies of worship confusion about the role of women in the church, and heresies about the afterlife. And you could go on and on. Sounds like a church of America, doesn't it? Hopefully not this church. But it was a mess. So he wrote that first letter, and he corrected and issue after issue after issue. And when you read it, he's pretty strong. He's pretty blunt. Um, he loves them. He reminds them that he prays for them. He cares about them. And they, he wants to have nothing but a good report about them. And then he writes this second letter. And one of the things that we're going to talk about today is an issue he addressed in the first letter, and that had to do with the afterlife. Because there was a lot of false teaching about the afterlife, what was going to take place. What happens when someone dies? Most of you probably remember the story about Stephen. Stephen wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He was actually one of the seven deacons that were appointed in the church. And Stephen, like the disciples, was very bold. He was in love with the Lord, and he couldn't help but speak about the Lord. And we know that one day he was in a setting where his audience was not very friendly. He was addressing a lot of members of the Sanhedrin. And what he did as he was addressing the Sanhedrin, he made a great sermon, if you want to read it. And he, what he did is he laid out historically all that God had done for the nation of Israel from the time he called them all the way through. And then he pointed out how they had rejected and even killed some of the prophets. How, he, how they had heard the truth but would not hear the truth. How they stuck to their old traditions and laws and their religion, ignoring the obvious uh, t- instruction and teaching that Jesus What's the Messiah who had been prophesied was going to come for many, many years? And then he finally says this about him. He calls him this. He finishes his argument in a very not so tactful way. He says to them, You're a stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts. And he then accused them of murdering Jesus. Well, I love the way the, the Scripture defines or explains their response to this. He says, With a gnashing of teeth... Yelling and screaming. They ran at him with their ears closed. I think they were ticked. And it says they grabbed him and they took him out of the city to stone him. He had spoken the truth and they still wouldn't receive it. And as they were taking him out of the city, just moments before he was to be stoned, it says that Stephen gazed up into heaven. And heaven opened before him. And he saw the father and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And then it says in Acts 7, verse 59, when they as they went on stoning Stephen, as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then having said this, he fell asleep. We see a picture of Stephen as a man who did not fear death. As a matter of fact, he faced death with a sense of victory and a sense of confidence. Now, Paul had addressed in the letter of 1 Corinthians, especially in chapter 15, he had had tried to explain to them, correcting a whole bunch of their bad teaching about what happened after you died. He had explained to them about the spirit leaving. He explained about the resurrections that were going to take place. He laid all this out for them, but evidently they didn't get it because he revisits this topic in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. And I'm pretty sure one of the reasons he did is the same reason it needs to be talked about more today. People fear death. People fear death. I have some family members, they won't even talk about it, which is kind of one of the normal reactions when you bring up dying or death. They don't want to talk about it. And if we do talk about it, if unbelievers especially talk about it, and sadly many of us Christians talk about it, if we talk about it at all, it's kind of joking in a, in a, in a hopefully a, a funny way. You know, I remember so many times with so many of my unsaved friends when I was living that life, you know. Yeah, well, hey, if there is a hell, we'll see you there. We'll party together there, too, just like we do here. Anybody else ever say something stupid like that? I was afraid not, just me. Well, that just shows you where I came from. Death, to most people, it's a scary thing. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15 says this. People who fear death, he says, Those who all their lives are held in slavery by the fear of death. Those who live their entire life held in slavery to this fear of dying. In the past year, I've had the privilege of watching a couple of people that I love very much. Most of you knew them, Arnie Fredericks. Glenn Larson, men of God who faced death. And they faced it in the midst of knowing what kind of loss there is, knowing that they were going to leave family and loved ones behind. They faced it with a confidence. They were not afraid of dying. In a sense, they faced it and knew it as the ultimate victory here on earth because they knew what we all should know and understand. It doesn't make it easier for those of us that are left behind all the time. But if it wasn't for what we should know as Christians about what happens at death, it would be unbearable. They're just gone. What's the purpose and sense of that? Remember the story in the Old Testament of Daniel's uh, friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember, they were three young Jewish boys who had been taken away into bondage to Babylon. And they were supposed to denounce their faith. They were supposed to bow down and worship other things. And they said, "Uh uh-uh, we aren't going to do that no matter what. And the king said, when it was reported to the king, he says, bring them. And it says they heated the furnace that they were going to throw them into seven times normal temperature. They they got it so hot, the people that threw them in died. But remember what their attitude was? They said, we know that our God is able, if he should so choose, to rescue us from the fiery furnace no matter how hot it is. But even if he doesn't, we will not deny our God. There's a confidence. There's a confidence in God that is, that is supernatural. It is otherworldly, that kind of confidence. It comes from the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in the heart and life of a believer. Knowing God. Knowing about what the Bible says about death. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 15, it's verse 26. It just simply says these words, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. As I read that and as I've studied this before, you know, death is like this this, this dark cloud that unless the Lord comes back, every one of us are going to face. Every single one of us are going to face death unless Jesus comes back while well, we're still alive. And it just hangs over us. And it says the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Here's this line I just love. Death, when it comes, is victory. When we die, death is defeated. The world doesn't understand that. The devil doesn't want us to get it. But when we die, we leave the tent. And the real life begins. So the greatest victory happens at that moment of death. The reason Jesus died on that cross was for the forgiveness of sins that we could spend eternity in intimate fellowship and relationship with him in heaven. The enemy has got this thing and the world has got this idea that this death thing, this dying thing is horrible. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to leave anytime soon. And I hope neither do you. Although some things are very attractive about it, aren't they, Kathy? Kathy keeps telling me, are you kidding me? Living here versus there? Especially when our loved ones have gone on before us. But you know what? God has a, a purpose for our lives right here. Every day till the last breath. So I don't want to go any sooner than it's my time. But we need to understand some things about death. And Paul is trying to make it very clear to the Corinthians, even after that first letter, he revisits again. And so we're going to read, I'm going to read to you first from Second Corinthians chapter 5, the first 10 verses. And it should be up on the screen. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we having put it on, we won't be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed but to be clothed in order that we that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life now he who prepared us for this very purpose is god who gave to us the spirit as a pledge therefore being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body we are absent from the lord for we walk by faith not by sight we are of good courage i say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we look into your word, your Holy Spirit speaks to each one of our hearts. Father, I pray that as Christians, we get a new understanding, a new revelation as Paul is teaching of what death really is for a Christian. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look through those few verses, those 10 verses in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul lays out some principles, I think, that tell us how we can face death with confidence. And I want to go through four of them. First one is this. We can face death with confidence when we realize that all we are doing right now is living in a tent. Some of you may not know or remember that Paul, his profession, the way he made his living, was as a tent maker. So Paul is using an example, something he understood very well and something that the people would understand very well. And he says, this body, this life that we're living here on earth, this body, it's nothing more than a tent. And how many of us know and understand, and his, his audience would have understood, that a tent is designed to be temporary. It's not designed to be a permanent home. You know, when we have a tragedy or hurricane or tornadoes or whatever come in and they have to set up tents for the people, guess what? None of those people go, this is really great, I'm glad my house is gone. I can live in this tent for the rest of my life. No, it's not designed to be permanent. A couple of things, a couple of qualities about a tent that I can attest to. Those of you that have heard me before know that my wife loved to camp. Loved to camp. She still thinks I'm young enough to do that. She's deceived. We camped every vacation. Every time we went on a vacation with our kids, we'd head to the mountains. There was no east, there was always just west. And we'd head to the mountains and we'd camp. I believe one time we went up into the boundary waters and we camped. We put up our tent on a big rock. Great. We went to Banff and we put up our tent in a place where there's an eight foot fence all the way around the campground to protect you from wild animals. Guess what? I was reminded my tent is not secure. And we need to understand that's one thing about a tent, they are not secure. A storm come, man. I can't tell you how many times our tent got so rained on and wet there'd be water standing inside the tent. Not that comfortable. Wind would come blow the tent. It's not secure. And we need to understand this tent is not secure. This tent that we are living in is not designed by God to last forever. It's a temporary dwelling, but because it's all we know and understand, we act like this is the greatest tent in the world. And I'm going to do everything I can to make this tent last forever. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be a good steward of your body, though some of you know me better. And I live that way sometimes. But it's uncertain. Life is uncertain, life is insecure just like a wind could come and take that tent, just like that, this life that we are living right now could come and be gone just like that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much life insurance you got. Sorry, Ben. doesn't matter how much money you got in the bank. It doesn't matter how many plans you made. It doesn't matter. This life could be gone that quick. Any day. For any one of us. Living in this tent is not secure. And the other thing about a tent that I can certainly attest to is they are not comfortable. Now you might like it more than me, but they're not comfortable. I remember when we were up in the boundary waters sleeping on a rock. I had to get up at sunrise because it took me a half an hour to even function. <laughs> my body hurts so bad. Isn't camping fun? That's what my wife would do. She'd come out smiling in the morning, isn't this great? And i am go, Are you nuts? This tent is horrible. It's uncomfortable. Oh, God, we camped sometimes out in the mountains. and it was supposed to be cool. It was hot, sweaty. If you didn't zip the thing shut and all our kids were little having fun running in and out, they'd be full of mosquitoes. There are mosquitoes in the mountains. It wasn't that comfortable. We camped in Banff, and it was so cold, the water on the picnic table outside our tent froze. And we didn't know it was that cold in June in Banff. There was nothing comfortable about it. You may think the tent that you're living in is pretty comfortable. Well, give it some time. It's designed to be temporary. God, in the middle of the night, I'm awake last night. My back hurts so bad, I think I've got kidney problems going on. Then I remembered, they had a golf tournament out here. It rained. I went out and volunteered to squeegee the water off the green. I mean, I used to do that and not even think about it. How many of you can relate to your body is not comfortable anymore? There we go, finally. It's not designed to be comfortable forever. Should the Lord give us many years, it's just going to get worse and worse. It's not going to function the way it was designed. Because it wasn't designed to last forever once sin entered the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 4, verse I read said, while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. <laughs> I used to give my dad a bad time. He sits in his recliner and with his remote, and he just groans. Cindy goes, he's groaning all the time. I go, he's groaning all the time. Cindy goes, you do that too. <laughs> and now I pay attention, and I do do that. I try to get out of the car, and uh, get out of bed. You can hear the groaning over the cracking joints. It's not comfortable. It was never intended to last forever. But we act and live like it is supposed to last forever. It's not. It's not designed that way. When we face death with confidence, or we will face death with confidence, when we realize that this tent is supposed to disappear, that's God's plan. It's supposed to disappear. One of the words, if you do a word study, but I won't go into it, but the words of this tent, this house being gone, it's like God is unloosening everything. That's what the Greek translation says. So it's like when death comes, he's unloosening all of this outer tent stuff so that the real me, my spirit, can be finally set free from this tent that by the time I die, I'm going to feel so trapped in. And as we suffer and, and go through the experiences of living in this fallen world, some of us are going to go through some terrible things in our tent. And I can attest to these two men, at the very least, in this last year, they were ready to leave the tent. And they faced it with confidence. Sure, there was pain and emotional stress because they knew they were leaving behind loved ones, for goodness sakes. But we should have that same kind of confidence. And we can. And one of the things that helps us overcome this fear of death, because really the biggest part of that fear of dying is the fear of the unknown. I mean, we have that, most of us have that fear of the unknown in lots of things. You know, some of you might remember the first time you were going to ask a girl out. And nowadays, some of you may remember when you first were going to ask the guy out, some of you girls. They didn't do that in my day, but... Man, what if they say no? No way I'm going to put myself up for that humiliation. I'd say no. What if they do? We're fear of the unknown. One of the best things to overcome the fear of the unknown is information. As long as that information is based on truth. So Paul's teaching here about death is a wonderful source of information to help us overcome any fear of death. Or dying. It's only meant to be temporary. We can face death with confidence when we realize it's just a tent. But secondly, we can face it when we understand what happens when we die. Here's some information. And, and it's not that complicated. Paul laid it out in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. and He lays it out again here in chapter 5. And you put them together. You can see it's not too complicated. And I just want to point out four things that happen when we die the first thing that happens when we die is our spirit leaves the tent. Our spirit is gone. Our spirit is loosed by God. Part of his plan. Part of his design. Our spirit is loosed by God and is in the presence of God instantly. That's a pretty good deal. That should build confidence in a Christian. To know that the moment I take that last breath, my heart beats its last beat. My spirit is set free and I am in the presence of God. Remember with the man named Jarias, his daughter was dead and they went to raise her from the dead. And it says, He, however, took her by the hand and called out saying, Child, arise. And what happened? Her spirit returned. Because when death comes, our spirit leaves. When there is life... The spirit is there. The real you is not what you see in the mirror. It's just not you. The real you is the spirit, your spirit in the tent. You know, our tents are all so different. But that's not even who we are. The spirit in us is the real you. It's the real me. So the first thing that happens is our spirit leaves our body. And after the departure from the body... We are instantly in the presence of the Lord. We leave, we're in the presence of God. Instantly. Not a lot to fear so far. In 2 Corinthians 5.8 it says, We are of good courage. Paul says, I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. He's telling us. That's what's going to happen. We are going to be absent. We are going to be loosed from our body and we are going to be home with the Lord. And Paul's actually saying, That'd be better. I know it'd be better. I really, that's what I'd prefer. But God's not through with me yet. And that needs to be our kind of mindset, our thought. You know what? It will be so much better when I am freed of this tent and my spirit is home with the Lord. Because that's what we were created for to be in his presence, worshiping him, serving him for eternity. Now, not to intentionally step on any toes, but there is no intermediate destination. We don't die and then go somewhere so our sins are purged. It's not there. I know some of us come from backgrounds, religious backgrounds, where they teach that there is such a place. It's not there, it's nowhere to be found. God purged our sins for us on the cross completely. All of it was dealt with on the cross. There is nothing we can do, even after we're a Christian, to get rid of our sins. Jesus did it already on the cross. So there is no intermediate place that we go to. We immediately are in the presence of the Lord. Third thing that happens is we're going to receive a new body. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Everybody my age goes, hallelujah. All you youngsters think, ah, this is pretty cool. What's with this? Listen to this in First Thessalonians four fifteen. For this we say to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, when Jesus comes back, the ones that are still alive have to wait their turn. Those that have died get to get their new body first. It says, "For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And John 14:1, "Do not let your heart be troubled. believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places, there's many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now, I know when I heard that verse read in Sunday school or at funerals, I go to prepare a mansion. You know what I think about? Man, I am going to have a big home finally. There's going to be plenty of storage space, there's going to be seating for everybody. And I don't think that means that at all. I believe that dwelling place, that mansion, if that's what you want to call it, is my new body. I am going to prepare a place for you. For who? My, ten, my spirit. Now, you can argue with that one if you'd like. I'm just telling you what I think. But I think he is preparing. And when you look at it, it, it indicates, and in again, the grammar, that it's the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all three working on my body. I like that. Best construction crew ever. We are going to get a new body. And it's one that's going to be recognizable. I believe the Bible lets us know that it's going to be recognizable, but it's not going to be identical because it's not built by hands. It says God is building my place. No humans involved. No flaws. So, The fourth thing, and this is something that should catch our attention, in verse 10 that we read, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of God. It says this in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You know, our works do not save us. They don't even get us close to being saved if we're not saved. They do nothing in far as salvation is concerned. Nothing. It's all by grace through faith. But our works are important. The way we live our life on here is important. As a matter of fact, it's important enough that that Paul is telling us that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day and he is going to reward us, recompense us, according to our works here on earth. Now, for the unbeliever, this judgment is a judgment of sin. For an unbeliever, this is where they are going to face the consequences of rejecting Christ. You know, all the sins that we commit, none of those sins are what cause us to go to hell. Rejecting Christ is what causes anybody to go to hell. God doesn't send anybody to hell. People say, what kind of God would send people to hell? The answer is, if you've got this, not figured this out before, your answer is real quick. He doesn't send anybody to hell. No one. People send themselves by the choice they do not make in accepting Jesus Christ, when they reject Christ. So that's the judgment for them. But for us believers, that's not what it's about. For us believers, this is where we're going to get our rewards, based on what we do. Lots of people have lots of opinions on what the rewards are. One of them I like is that it's the proximity to the throne of God. That's pretty cool. But whatever our rewards are, it won't matter if yours are more than mine because I'm going to be so happy with mine, I don't even know you have more. There won't be jealousy. There's no envy. There's no strife in heaven. There's no sadness in heaven. But it does say there will be a loss because all of our works are going to be tested by fire and what remains is our rewar- what our reward is based upon. So there's so many things that we, we work for in our life. If we're working for these things in our flesh, they're going to burn. It's the things that we do to bring glory and honor to God. There's eternal things that we do that are going to give us our reward. Another definition or idea about the reward is the, the number of jewels in your crown. I like that one, too. But whatever it is, we know if they're rewards from God, they're going to be amazing rewards. How can we face death with confidence? Well, the third thing is when we start to eagerly anticipate eternal life. When we eagerly anticipate it. In in 2 Corinthians 5, again, as I read it before, Therefore, being always of good courage, always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the tent, we are absent from the Lord, we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and home with the Lord. As that becomes our mindset, we can face death with confidence. Oh, Mike, you're going to die. Yes, I'm going home to be with the Lord. I'm going to be set free of this body. In his time, of course. And fourth, we can be facing death with confidence when we are assured of our personal salvation. There is no confidence in facing death if you're not sure of your salvation. The Bible says, we tell you these things that you may know that you are saved. The I hope so thing, I'm trying thing, whatever your excuse thing is. No, the Bible says we can know. And when we know, there is a certainty and a peace. (coughs) And it's interesting in 2 Corinthians 5, 1, where it says, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, That word there where it says, for if we know, it's that word that means we intuitively know. When the Holy Spirit lives in us and dwells in us, we just know. We can't lay out all the facts on a piece of paper. I can tell you what the Bible says, but you may not believe that. But I know, the Bible says, I know. I intuitively know because the Holy Spirit has been given as a pledge. It's been given as a down payment, if you would. It's been given as proof that I'm a child of God. And I know. I know. Like I said, I'm not in a hurry to die, but I know if I do, I'm going home. I know if I die, I'm going to be out of this tent. There's going to be no more pain, no more stiffness, no more nothing that's, a, a, that's bad at all. It's gone. I know. Intuitively, we know. We have, meaning we have this in Christ already. That verse says, we have. We know. It's already there for us as a Christian. And then I stressed this already, but I want to hit it one more time in closing. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5, it says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. But God prepared us to one day be set free of this tent. He prepared us for that. When we begin to understand these things about what happens to us when we die, the confidence that we have in facing death, you know, the enemy just loves to use fear. He's a liar and a deceiver, and his desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal your hope. He wants to kill and destroy your confidence. He wants us to live in fear. But when we know these things, we can be confident. When we know about our salvation, if you died, do you know you're saved? Are you sure about your salvation? We had an awesome week here last, year, last week, if you weren't here. We had an evangelist here. Gerald Mahan was here. And he laid out this message so clear about salvation. and So many people came forward to either commit their lives to Christ for the very first time or to recommit, rededicate, trying to get back in that right place with the Lord because we have a tendency to wander away. And the less we're in the Word, the less time we spend in the Word, the less time we spend praying, the less time we spend studying, the less time we spend with brothers and sisters in Christ in fellowship, it's really easy to drift away. But we need to know for certain of our salvation. We need to acknowledge, if we've never done it before, that we are sinners and we need a Savior. And there was no way we could do it on our own, so God sent His only Son, Jesus, who came to earth for the purpose of redeeming us that we might spend eternity with Him. He went to that cross. He died in my place because the penalty for sin is death. And he offers it to us freely. Either reject Christ or accept Christ. If you accept Christ, the moment you do, the Holy Spirit moves in. And there should be intuitively a certainty in your heart. Let's close in prayer. Let's stand with me if you would. And if there is an uncertainty in your heart, I just encourage you. To Ask yourself. Ask God. We don't want to walk around getting resaved saved every six days. That's not the deal once we get saved. But if we don't know for sure, if that's not in us, there's not that confidence. It's time to get things set right in your life and your relationship with the Lord. Father, I pray as you search our hearts right now God, I pray your Holy Spirit would be stirring. God, in all of us that know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to just give us that confidence, that certainty of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ that the enemy could not steal for one moment the confidence we have about our eternal destiny. Lord, and if there would be some here, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just reveal that, that no, they've not. Draw them. Woo them by yourself. Draw them to you that they would cry out and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That they would not reject that free offer, that free gift of spending eternity with you. God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit can do what no man can do. That that your Spirit brings life to our spirit, the real us. Lord, I thank you for the promise that we have. That one day this body, this tent, will be discarded and we will leave this tent to spend eternity with you. I pray now, Lord, that as we go this week, we go as your ambassadors, that we go as your hands and feet, that we go listening to your Holy Spirit as you arrange those divine appointments to tell people. Tell others about the good news of Jesus. God especially, especially that we can share with them the hope we have of spending eternity with you, and that Jesus and what he did is the reason for that hope. We pray your protection over us now. We ask that all that we would do would bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.